Christian niceness, being nice. Some of you don't suffer from this illness, um, but there are some tests to figure out if you do. All right, first test. Have you ever said, if only all of the churches in Bundaberg would work together, then we would have an impact? If the answer is yes, then you might be suffering from Christian niceness. Second question. We don't need theology. All Jesus talked about was love. If you've ever said that, your case is nearly terminal and you need to get to the ITC, the ITU, the Intensive Theology Unit, and um, see if they can't sort out this problem that you're having. Now, the gospel of niceness, all jokes aside, is the belief that at the core of Christianity, its most essential truth is that we must be nice. That we have to be nice to one another in the church. We have to be nice to everyone outside the church. We must be completely nice at all times. And in being nice, we will fulfill the Great Commission. The problem is that's not the Christianity of the Bible. This is not the core of the Christian life. We are called first and foremost to live lives that glorify Jesus and we do this by living according to the truth of his word and by sharing the truth of his word through the preaching of the gospel. In short, we are people of truth and our commitment to truth is higher than our commitment to being nice. All right? Our commitment to truth is higher than our commitment to being nice. Because there is a possibility that the truth will offend. And we either stand on the truth or we keep silent and be nice. The cult of niceness was seen during the COVID pandemic. Christians astounded, horrified, shocked that we might disobey the government, that the government could actually control the church and we must automatically do it because the government says so, right? Being nice. Now, those same people would agree that Christians can smuggle Bibles into places where it's banned. They would also agree that you can share the gospel in places where it's banned, but those things happen overseas, not here in the country of nice. Here, we've just got to do what's nice. So we have a government mandating when churches could and couldn't meet, if they could or couldn't sing, against the commands of Scripture. We also have government passing increasingly awful laws of full-time abortion, euthanasia for mental health, awful trans laws that are going to harm so many, and Christians are silent because we've just got to be nice. So we're going to look at some passages this morning that will challenge this notion, that will help us understand that our commitment to truth is our higher call. We're going to do that in three areas. We're going to look at Christians in the world, Christians with government, and Christians in the church. Okay, so three areas, and we're just going to look at a challenge to how we are to work through our Christian faith. So firstly, Christians in the world. Where this gospel of niceness has led, and as it is commonly held, that in order to reach the community with the good news, in order for a church to have an impact, 
we have to embrace the culture of the world. We have to mirror the culture. We have to know its music. We have to know its language. We have to know its entertainment. And so by being those things, we can be culturally relevant enough to get into the culture of the world and be a part of it. You'll hear this argument from some Christian musicians who make music that is indistinguishable from the music of the world. And the idea is that I make music that everyone loves from the world, and then eventually when I'm fully inculcated into the world, then I might have a platform to share the truth. Usually, though, that never happens. Usually they just resemble the world. Now, one of the passages used to support this idea is Paul at Mars Hill. Now, you might be familiar, this is Acts chapter 17, and Paul walks around and he sees a tomb for an unknown God. And he uses that as a platform to share about the good news of Jesus Christ. So in other words, he identifies something in their culture, a tomb to an unknown God, and he uses that as a platform for the message. Right? So let me read you Acts 17, 22 to 23. Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and he said, People of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every aspect. For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar which was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. So this gets used as an idea of find things in the culture, be a part of the culture, uh, and then present a nicely packaged cultural message. But Paul does something really different here if we analyze this text carefully. So we're just going to have a little look at this to see what was really going on at Mars Hill to understand Paul's real missional strategy when he was in this place. So to do that, we've always got to read a passage in its context. So we're going to read a bit more of our passage. This is Acts 17, 16 through to 21. Acts 17, 16 to 21. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed when he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worshipped God, as well as in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also debated with him. Some said, what is this ignorant show-off trying to say? Others replied, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Note, Jesus and the resurrection. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus and said, may we learn about this new teaching you are presenting because what you say sounds strange to us and we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners residing there spent their time on nothing else but telling or hearing something new. Amen. Our passage begins, Paul was waiting for them in Athens. Now this is actually meaningful. Why was Paul waiting for them in Athens? Well, if you actually go back slightly further in context, guess what? Paul, whose unyielding commitment to the truth had had him once again run out of the previous town. So once again, Paul's unyielding commitment to preaching the gospel had had him thrown out of town, and the other brothers, our passage tells us, kind of whipped Paul off to Athens and just said, Paul, 
too much trouble, you go and wait for us in Athens, we'll tidy up here and then we'll come and join you, right? So once again, Paul run out of town for his fierce commitment to the truth. That is why Paul is sitting there on his own in Athens. And as Paul is waiting for the other guys in Athens, he walks around the city. As he walks around the city, his heart is grieved. Grieved, it's torn. It says he's agonizing over seeing lost people worshipping idols. Church, when do you feel like that? When do we walk around Bundaberg and grieve, agonize over the people who are worshipping idols? And this is Paul's heart. He feels pain to see a city full of people worshipping that which will not lead to salvation. And he's grieved. So what's he do? What's his response to that? He goes to the synagogue, first to the Jew, Paul's a Jew, he goes to the synagogue and tells them about Jesus, and then he goes to the marketplace where the Gentiles were, and he tells them about Jesus, and note the resurrection. Why? Because the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers of the day were adamantly, adamantly against the idea that there was a resurrection from the dead. Paul goes to those who do not believe that there's a resurrection, and what's his message? Life and resurrection through Jesus Christ. Straight to the truth of the gospel, knowing full well it was going to give offense. You you read in there some name calling. Who is this ignorant babbler is basically what it says. In other words, who is this stupid guy and what is he babbling on about, right? They basically insult Paul and keep him names and he preaches the truth. What's the result of his fierce commitment to the truth and not bending despite what the culture wants? Well, he gets invited to the Areopagus. Now, that's the equivalent of getting invited to the Oprah show, right? It's really that level of publicity. You're invited to go and speak to somebody who's not a Christian, who has hostile views to your own, and you're invited to go on the most popular show of the time and present your argument. You've made it. This is the culturally relevant moment. This is what those Christian musicians I was talking about are aiming for. This moment of absolute popularity. You're on the world stage. What a chance to weaken the gospel, to present a nice message that people will just enjoy. Make it easy and palatable for people to hear. Now, of course, that is not what Paul does. So what does Paul actually go on to say? Well, this is Acts 17, 22 to 34, the flowing of our passage. You already heard the first bit, but let's hear it. This is what Paul says. Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every aspect. For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by hands, neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives life gives everyone life and breath and all things from one man. He has made every nationality to live on the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and boundaries and where they live. 
He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Since then we are God's offspring. We shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art and imagination. Therefore, having overlooked times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has set a day when he's going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him. But others said, we'd like to hear from you again about this. So Paul left their presence. However, some people joined him and believed, including Dionysus, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Amen. So what does Paul do on this huge stage? Remember, he's already been name-called. He's already caused controversy by talking about resurrection. And so Paul gets on this platform, and what's his message? Well, it really breaks down to four things, if you break down what he says here. Firstly, he says, God alone creates and sustains everything. Now, they had similar views of creation as what you get nowadays out in the world. People weren't into God uh, mixing it up with creation. So that was bound to cause controversy. So he starts with, God alone is the creator and sustainer of all things. Secondly, he says, you are all wrong and ignorant. All of your worship, all of your practices, all of your idols, all of your temples, all of the things you've built with stone, with metal, with wood, they are all wrong. Thirdly, he says, you must repent. There is no righteousness outside of Jesus because your worship is all false, because you've lost the one true uh, God, because everything you're doing is wrong, you must repent of your religion. And fourthly, he says, if you put your faith in Jesus, there is resurrection from the dead and new life in the kingdom. Wow. What does Paul say? He preaches unashamedly, the gospel of truth. What's the reaction? Did you note? Some began to ridicule him. Some began to ridicule him. He doesn't go for the popular message. He doesn't go for the nice message. He goes for the truthful message. What's the result? Some ridicule him. Some want to hear more. And some believe. Church, that's what we are called to do, to present the truth. And presenting the truth means that some people are going to ridicule you, some people might want to hear some more, and some people will believe, right? That is what you are called to do, present the gospel, present the good news, present the truth of who Jesus is, uncompromisingly telling them, that you must believe in the creator of all things, that all other idols are false, that they must repent and they will have life in the name of Jesus. A higher call than being nice is to present the truth. All right? So that's how we interact with the world. Secondly, Christians and government. Now, 
We talked about this a lot during COVID, so we won't dwell on this too long, but we'll just mention it because government in, our, in Australia is increasingly hostile. All governments, not talking political parties, all governments are increasingly hostile, and so we need to think this through. So we're going to look at Acts 5, 40 to 42. Acts 5, 40 to 42. After they called in the apostles and had them flogged, they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and released them. After they ordered them in and had them flogged, they said, don't speak in the name of Jesus. Then they went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be treated shamefully on behalf of the name. Every day in the temple and in various homes, they continued teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Effective, wasn't it? Don't tell anyone about Jesus. Every day they continued telling everyone about Jesus. Right? That was their response to this. Don't speak about Jesus. Every day they told people about Jesus. Now, I think that's pretty clear. I think most of us would agree with that, that we should obey God rather than man. Where we get unstuck, church, is applying that principle. Because for our entire lives in this country, there's been little to no conflict between government and church. We basically did what we wanted in church while government after government slowly destroyed the morality of our nation, but pretty much left the church alone. And our view was, well, as long as we're nice, they will keep leaving us alone and we can keep just living however we like. Well, times have changed. And the simple being nice thing won't work anymore. They're currently trying to pass laws in Queensland so a Christian school can't employ based on faith. Right? So as a Christian school, one of the parameters you're not allowed to ask is, is my staff member a Christian? Right? Now that's an active attack on the church, on the schools that we actually run. Right? So our schools, BYLC, BCC, they're facing this challenge right now. The government's got it right before Parliament saying, right, you can no longer include faith. If someone gets approved to euthanize themselves in Queensland for mental health, and they come up to you and say, what do you think about this? And you say, well, I think the Bible says, no, we shouldn't get euthanized. You can go to jail for seven years just because you don't agree with them, Right? That's a fact. That's already law in this state. If you disagree with somebody who's been approved, if you tell them what the Bible says, you can go to jail. This thing's driving me crazy, by the way. We've seriously got to get a new one. Um, I'm just obsessed with my ear. That's what I'm doing. Um, right? That's a fact. The government is coming after the church, and we have to realize that. It doesn't matter how nice we are. It doesn't matter if we try to play by every government rule and regulation. The government is coming after the church. That's a fact. We have to understand that our commitment to the truth will bring us into conflict with the government. It's going to happen. Because our higher call is not being nice. Our higher call is honoring the Jesus of the Bible. And that means at times, conflict. Now... We should obey the government where we can. As Christians, sorry, we do need to pay tax. As Christians, we should not speed, right? There are no reasons that we're in conflict with those government rules. 
As Christians, we need to get blue cards. As Christians, we should be operating child safe. These are good things. They're rules that as Christians, we should uphold well and keep well. But where the government goes against the word of God, our goal is not nice, our goal is truth. I think the best summary of this really in the whole scripture, this is just one verse, but this is the book of Daniel, uh, chapter 6, verse 22. Now, I want you to think about this. King Darius orders a command that nobody is allowed to worship anyone other than him. No one is allowed to pray to anyone other than Darius. Nobody's allowed to um, have any kind of worship practice at all other than of him. And then you know the story. Daniel has the habit of three times a day going on his balcony and publicly praying to God. What does Daniel do when the king says, you can't pray to God anymore? He gets out in his balcony and he prays. And you know the story, he gets thrown into the lion's den, God shuts the lion's mouths, they can't eat him, and so the king comes and sees that Daniel's okay and rips Daniel out, throws his advisors in who get eaten by the lions. Uh, But anyway, then Daniel makes this incredible statement. I want you to listen to this. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths And they haven't harmed me, for I was found innocent before him, God, and also before you, your majesty. I've done no harm. Whose law was it? It was Darius, the king's. And Daniel says, I was found innocent of your law. By whom? God. Because God is the lawgiver above government. So Daniel can be declared innocent by God despite the law being made by man, right? That's what that passage says. Because the king's uh, law broke the law of God to worship him and Daniel says, I've been declared innocent by the lawgiver who's above you. Church, get ready. Those times are coming. And we've got to think less about being nice and more about the fact that we are called to honour Christ when the going gets hard, right? That is a fact. That's the reality of our faith. God is king over all. Thirdly, and lastly, Christians in the church. As I've said, you hear this statement, if all the churches work together in unity, then the gospel would have an impact. Well, that's humanism, not the gospel. The gospel is very clear about our requirement to protect the true gospel message. So I want to read to you, this is 2 John 7 to 10. 2 John 7 to 10. Many deceivers have gone out into the world. They do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you don't lose what we have worked for but that you may receive a full reward. Anyone who does not remain in Christ's teaching but goes beyond it does not have God. The one who remains in that teaching, this one has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your home and do not greet him. Oof, powerful words, isn't it? Do not receive him into your home And do not greet him. In short, what is the passage saying? It's saying anyone who either adds to the gospel or subtracts from the gospel 
is ruining the truth of the gospel message and we cannot associate with anyone that looks like we are promoting an untruthful gospel. Right? That is what our passage is saying. If people claim the name of Jesus but distort the gospel truth, John's message is not be nice to them. John's message is have nothing to do with them if they distort the gospel. I guess John didn't care about the gospel flourishing, right? He forgot to say, just dwell in unity and it will all work. No, it has to be the true gospel that unites us. Not anyone claiming the name of Christ. So what are the true parameters of the gospel? I mean, there's a number of ways we can say it, but a simple way is this. Christ alone, through faith alone, by grace alone, for the glory of God alone. Right? Christ alone, by faith alone, through grace alone, for the glory of God alone. Simple way of saying the parameters of the gospel. Now, it might be a church denying a truth about Jesus or a church adding legalism about Jesus. In this case, in the church that John was writing to, it was a church removing something about Jesus, that he dwelt in the flesh. In the church in Galatia that Paul savagely attacks, it was a church adding to the gospel while trying to add law, legalism, works. So we can add or subtract from the gospel. Either way, we are distorting the true gospel and the result should not be unity. So what is a a, uh, sufficient distortion of the gospel? Well, church, this is what I want you to think about. Our goal is not niceness, our goal is truthfulness. So we've got those who don't consider Jesus to be fully God. Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Christadelphians, etc. Do not consider Jesus to be fully God. They have a distortion of the gospel. We've got those who add to the gospel. Roman Catholics, we are saved through works. They're adding to the gospel. What about the prosperity gospel? So church, we need to think, what is it doing to the message of the gospel? What's it doing to its truthfulness? And if it's distorting the true gospel as proclaimed in the Scripture, then our result is not niceness. Our result is to stand on the truth. Now, that can be from organization to organization, church to church, or even individuals. This is my last quick little passage before we finish. But I love this. This was Paul talking to Cephas, or better known in the Scriptures as Peter, the Apostle Peter. Listen to this quickly. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. That's strong language, isn't it? This is Paul saying, I opposed the apostle Peter to his face. That means publicly, for all to see, I opposed Peter because he stood condemned, the apostle Peter. Why? Well, he tells us. For he regularly ate with the Gentiles before certain men came from James. However, when they came, he withdrew and separated himself because he feared those from the circumcision party. Then the rest of the Jews joined his hypocrisy so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were deviating from the truth of the gospel, I told Cephas in front of everyone, if you who are a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? In other words, 
Peter is compromising the gospel because when people come who will look down on him eating bacon and when people come down on him living like a Gentile, suddenly he brings law back into the Christian faith. And not only that, because Peter, who's so influential, begins to live under the law, Paul sees that other people are beginning to follow, that people are beginning to follow the false gospel of legalism. Right? This is the problem with being nice. You can sit back and go, oh, it would be really awkward to confront that. It's much easier to just be nice. And initially, Paul probably, he's like, oh gee, it's the Apostle Peter's truth. I don't quite want to take him on. And then he watches person after person beginning to adopt the same legalism. And Paul can't help it for the sake of the truth of the gospel and those who claim to follow Jesus. Paul publicly stands up in front of Peter and says, you are denying the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and are bringing legalism into it by which you are condemned because you're no longer saved by grace, Peter. You're going to be saved by law and you're not good enough. Right? Why? Because his commitment to the truth is greater than his call to be nice. Right? His commitment to the truth is greater than his call to be nice. Now, don't get me wrong. We know we are called to forgiveness. We know we are called to generosity. We know we are called to kindness, not slandering, hospitality, even, yes, being nice. We should be the kind of people that everyone looks to to say they're a genuinely kind, generous, good, warm person whom I can trust. That's true. We are called by Scripture to live like that. However, when the truth of the gospel comes into conflict with the world around us or even within the church, truth outranks nice. We must align ourselves with the truth of God's word over and above the call to being nice. Because if we tolerate a distortion of the gospel, if we dwell in unity with those who distort the gospel, then the distorted gospel spreads and many will be led astray. Church, stand on the truth more than just being nice. That is the call of our Christian faith. Amen? All right, let's pray. Lord, we really are meant to show the love of God. By our love for one another, we are meant to be shown as your disciples. Lord, we want to see increasing love, increasing generosity, increasing kindness in this church. But never, never at the compromise of the truth of your word. Lord, we pray you would help us balance the love of Christ and showing the reality of that love, but with also an unbending, unyielding, uncompromising stand on the truth of your word. Lord, may we be defenders of gospel truth, not those who through a mistaken idea would spread a distorted message. Lord, help us walk in that truth. We pray that in your precious name. Amen.